to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Welcome to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Today I want to talk to you about something very serious. You've all heard about the coronavirus by now, and the story is complicated because it's difficult to know what is true, what is false, real news or fake news, and what is simply unknown. There are a lot of things we just don't know yet, but the coronavirus doesn't care. It's out there anyway. So somehow we need to make sense of it because how we assess what is likely to happen may be a matter of our safety, our security, and maybe even a matter of our survival. So let's dig in and see where this goes. First of all, coronavirus is a generic name for this type of virus. Its official scientific name is 2019 NCoV for novel coronavirus. In other words, this is the 2019 novel coronavirus. It's a brand new story. It's only about eight weeks old. The first cases of coronavirus in China were reported during the first week in December 2019, although we didn't hear about it until December 31st. And since then, it has spread so rapidly that today, official Chinese sources are reporting that it has killed at least 106 people in China and infected some 4,500 more. That's their account, and we'll get back to that in a minute. First-hand accounts are relating how the hospitals are so full that the halls are jammed with people seeking medical help, and many are being turned away back into the streets. The probability is that this outbreak of a new virus may be much worse than we're being told. In fact, the news coming out of China is very misleading because their statistics are very unreliable. There has been no verifiable official tally of the dead and dying in China because at best their record keeping is unreliable and under these conditions the medical professionals are totally overwhelmed and record keeping is the last thing on their list of what needs to be done. So as of Monday, January 27th, this week, China reported that the virus had claimed 81 lives, with 2,493 confirmed cases of patients who have been infected. But the very next day, they reported that at least 106 people had died, and more than 4,500 were infected. The reality is that China is underreporting, and the numbers are likely to be significantly higher, because even under the best of circumstances, the overwhelming bureaucracy that exists in China impedes even the most urgent cases. On a good day, it can take days or even weeks to diagnose a single case. And even if the Chinese were being completely honest about the number who were sick and dying from the coronavirus, which I frankly doubt, they would still not be able to report the number of casualties accurately. During this last week, some shocking videos have surfaced that confirm earlier reports that people in Wuhan are simply dropping in the street 
and dying where they fall. If you want to see that video, you'll find it on my article, What is China Hiding? on AmericaOutloud.com. A nurse at one of the hospitals in Wuhan posted a video earlier this week in which she claimed that there were already 90,000 cases throughout China. And then photographs were also leaked from inside the hospitals, which showed body bags lining the walls. A British researcher predicted that the coronavirus would infect over 250,000 people, a quarter of a million people, in China in under two weeks. These predictions have raised fears that China will continue to try to underrepresent the true severity of the outbreak until it is too late to effectively contain it. Now, in an effort to stem the growing crisis, the Chinese government has sent hundreds of medical staff and military medical personnel to Wuhan. Another thousand medical personnel have been placed on standby. But it may be far too little, far too late. The city of Wuhan was first locked down on the morning of January 23rd, but it was only a partial shutdown. Then, on January 27th, it was reported that the entire city of Wuhan, China, which has a population of 11 million people, has been completely sealed off, and that some 1,500 members of the British Foreign Service are not being allowed to evacuate. Large berms are being constructed on the road so that no vehicles can enter or leave. And more than 56 million people in nearly 20 Chinese cities, including Wuhan, have also been prevented from traveling in order to contain the spread of the virus, particularly during the Lunar New Year, which is a two-week period that began on January 25th. It looks like China is in a state of panic, and thousands, maybe millions of people, are ultimately going to pay with their lives. Meanwhile, in the United States, five coronavirus patients, all of whom had recently been to Wuhan, have been confirmed by the Center for Disease Control in four states, Arizona, California, Illinois, and Washington. And that number has remained constant for the last few days. While only five people are actually known to have the virus, 110 other people in the U.S. are under observation for developing cases of the coronavirus. But as the 14-day asymptomatic incubation period begins to expire for others who may have been exposed, the numbers are likely to grow exponentially. Because although in the beginning the Chinese claimed that this virus could only be transmitted between animal and human, it has now been revealed that the virus has mutated and can now transmit the disease from human to human. This, my friends, is a big deal. According to official reports, the virus has already spread to at least 18 other countries around the world, including Thailand, South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, Germany, and Canada, and of course the United States. And that number is also growing as the virus continues to spread. So how did all this begin? Where did the virus come from? The official Chinese version is that the virus originated in an open-air meat market in the city of Wuhan in Hubei province in central China. That's where a number of the victims worked or shopped. Some say it came from eating bat soup, which it seems is a popular dish in that part of the world. And it's possible, maybe. 
But there's more to the story because here's what they didn't tell us. Wuhan is also the home of the Wuhan Ultra Biohazard Lab. That's a level four facility for studying, they say studying, what Nature Magazine has called, quote, the world's most dangerous pathogens, unquote. That includes the deadly SARS virus to which this coronavirus seems to be related. SARS stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, and that certainly describes this coronavirus. According to the Nature Magazine article, which was published in 2017, the facility in Wuhan is a maximum security biolab, and it was the first stage of a plan to build a whole network of level four facilities across China. According to Nature, BSL-4 is the highest level of biocontainment. Its criteria include filtering air and treating water and waste, among many, many other requirements. And get this, the lab was certified as having met the standards and criteria for BSL-4 from a Chinese government agency, the China National Accreditation Service for Conformity Assessment. It was accredited in January 2017. Tell me something, isn't that like putting the cat in charge of the health and well-being of the mice? Aren't the Chinese famous for cutting corners and breaking their agreements? When China built the lab in Wuhan, they maintained that their intention was to study SARS and Ebola. But even back then, in 2017, American biosafety experts expressed their concern with a warning that a virus could, quote, escape, unquote. They were talking about that facility in Wuhan, which now appears to be ground zero in this latest coronavirus crisis. In fact, the Nature article reported that the SARS virus had already escaped a number of times from a Beijing lab. But my sources tell me that in addition to studying the SARS virus, the lab was also weaponizing it. That means they were making it much more powerful, much more likely to mutate, much more easy to spread, and much more dangerous as an initiator of a plague or pandemic. So what went wrong? The official Chinese claim that ground zero for this virus was an open-air meat market has been largely discredited, but official China is maintaining this lie anyway. According to my sources, the true epicenter was, in fact, you guessed it, the Wuhan Ultra-Biohazard Lab. According to my sources, the virus was released in a laboratory accident and was then carried outside the facility into the general population, and because it had been weaponized, it spread very rapidly and lethally. So now the Chinese are doing everything they can to cover it up and apply damage control to a situation that is fast becoming a global nightmare. Reports vary about the virus itself, depending on the source. Originally, the report said that this virus was neither the SARS virus that nearly killed 800 people across Asia in 2002, or the MERS virus, which stands for Middle East Respiratory Syndrome virus. But this was thought to be something new, something else, in the beginning. 
Experts still disagree because they still have a lot to learn. But according to another report from a highly credible source, 2019 NCOV is in fact a weaponized form of the SARS virus. Theories abound and the definitive science is not in yet, but several things seem to be clear. This new form of the SARS virus is much more virulent and seems to have the ability to mutate very rapidly so that it can spread not only from animal to human, but from human to human. That means that it does not need an infected animal to spread the disease. We can do it to each other. The virus could not have struck at a worse time. The outbreak began just days before the Chinese New Year, which is a huge annual holiday when millions of Chinese travel. Five million nationals left Wuhan before the city was quarantined, and thousands flew to other countries for the two-week-long holiday. Since the outbreak began, flights from Wuhan have been landing in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and New York City. Passengers on those flights, as well as those to Singapore, Tokyo, Hong Kong, and many other places, are now being screened for the 2019 NCOV. But two weeks, 14 days, is exactly the incubation period for the coronavirus. So anyone who was exposed on their outbound flights from Wuhan might not begin to show signs of the virus before sometime around February 7th. So travelers to 10 airports in the United States are now being scanned with thermal sensors, which is supposed to detect fever. But the problem is that during the 14-day incubation period, the symptoms are not likely to appear. The carrier may still be contagious, but without having a fever. There isn't yet a test for an asymptomatic patient. There's no cure, and there's no way to protect America from the 2019 NCOV virus. How fast does the virus spread? Well, in Hong Kong, for example, the situation reached a critical point two days after the city's first confirmed case. They have closed kindergartens, primary and secondary schools, and they will not reopen until February 17th. They canceled the annual standard chartered Hong Kong Marathon, and a labor union representing medical staff even threatened to strike if the government refused to close the border. And in the meantime, the five million people who left Wuhan before the lockdown are still out there, and many of them have flown to other countries, including the United States, for their vacations. Altogether, China has put more than 56 million people on lockdown, but much of the damage has already been done. By being lax and careless in its handling of dangerous toxins, and by delaying the reporting of rapidly growing danger, China has suppressed the full extent of this coronavirus's deadly progress, and by keeping the mortality rate of the coronavirus artificially low through underreporting, the overall count will be dangerously misleading. China has put the entire world in danger, but China may be the country that is hurt the worst. China, more than any other country, may be the first to feel the devastating and deadly effect of the coronavirus as its population is attacked without a vaccine and without a cure. So here's the bottom line. The world is in a new crisis. 
one that is more important than trade deals, impeachment, elections, and even war. So the question is, how do we deal with this growing danger? This coronavirus, 2019 NCoV, has begun its assault on humanity. The number of people infected in Wuhan who are now in the United States has remained at five, but the asymptomatic two-week incubation period has barely begun. In fact, according to the CDC, there are 110 suspected coronavirus cases in 26 states across the United States. According to health officials, that number will only rise. They say that the outbreak in the United States is a, quote, rapidly changing situation, unquote. What we may see, in fact, within the next 10 to 12 days is a sudden jump in the number of people infected with the virus. There will be solutions out there, antidotes, vaccines, and better methods of detection. But at the moment, these are still under development. I will keep you posted on this. Tune in every week and I will give you a full update because this is one of the crises that may define the rest of our lives. Okay, I'm going to take a short break, but I'll be right back and we're going to talk about the deal of the century for Middle East peace. It's your news and entertainment network. News blogs, informative podcasts, entertaining videos, or listen to 24-7 Talk Radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We the people, AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. This has been a crazy week full of world-shaking events that may influence who we are and what we do for years to come. First, the possibility of a worldwide pandemic. And then, almost in the same breath, a plan for peace in the Middle East. On Tuesday, President Donald Trump and Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu stood together in Washington and presented the outline of what the president calls the deal of the century. This is his plan for peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians, and a broader concept that brings in the neighboring countries that have been enemies of Israel since that country's founding nearly 72 years ago. I have never been a big believer in the potential for peace in the Middle East between Israel and the Palestinians. I've lived there. I lived there for 16 years. And I, I see many reasons why it won't work. But I do believe that if anything can succeed, this one, this plan, has a chance. And it's the only one I've ever seen that actually might. So let me tell you a little bit about this plan and why it just may work, but also why it may not. First, the plan. This plan calls for a two-state solution. People have been crying for a two-state solution for years and years, for decades. Israel is a tiny country, barely the size of Vermont, and the idea of dividing it further seems ludicrous and wildly unfair. 
But when you have two groups of people who want the same land, but for a variety of reasons, don't want to share, there needs to be a solution. For the last 72 years, the only solution has been war. Endless war. One war after another war. So Donald Trump promised, when he ran for president, to try again. It was another of his campaign promises that he did not forget. For Israel, at least, peace is a strong incentive. A two-state solution isn't ideal, but it is an attempt at compromise with the Palestinians, many of whom have pledged to destroy the state of Israel and take it all. There have been many attempts to find a way to peace between Israel and the Palestinians, but none of them, none of them have succeeded. I've always objected to the two-state solution for what I think are some very good reasons, and I'll explain some of them to you in this part of the program. One of them is because it has always required a land link between the Palestinian land on the West Bank and that in Gaza, a highway connecting the West Bank and Gaza that runs right through the middle of the Negev Desert in Israel. That's what Barack Obama called, quote, the contiguous Palestinian state, unquote. The problem with that is that a contiguous state of Palestine would divide Israel, making it a state in two parts, and that would be unacceptable to any sovereign state. Trump's plan calls for a tunnel, not a road, that would connect the Palestinian part of the West Bank and Gaza. Okay, maybe. Then there are the two pieces of land themselves that must be connected. Gaza is Gaza. No changes there. But the West Bank is actually in two parts, and it's connected by Jerusalem. It was acquired, the West Bank, by Israel from Jordan in 1967, after Jordan attacked Israel from the east, and Israel drove the Jordanian forces back beyond the Jordan River and annexed all the land in between. That land is now called the West Bank, or by the biblical names, Judea and Samaria. Since 1967, the West Bank has been developed in such a way that parts of it are inhabited by the Palestinians and parts are home to Israelis who built cities and universities and industries and gardens in the desert, all things Israel is famous for. But if you haven't ever been to visit Israel or the territories of Palestinians, you may not know that between these towns and cities are just miles and miles and miles of desert, barren wastelands, uninhabited except by Bedouin and their long-eared goats. I mention this because when many Americans think of the West Bank, they don't realize that the vast spaces of desolate and barren sand offer opportunity but instead they think of Israeli tent cities infringing on thriving Palestinian lands. In fact, there is plenty of room, even in this tiny state, for a two-state solution. And what you might think of as Israeli settlements, picturing tent cities with only the rudiments of civilization, are really beautiful towns and real cities, with schools and stores and museums and houses and apartment buildings and gardens everywhere. Sharing this tiny country is not out of the question. In fact, it's a really good idea. 
Trump's plan calls for a Palestinian state within four years, with its capital in East Jerusalem. He has asked Israel to refrain from building in the West Bank those communities that people call settlements during that four-year period in order to give the Palestinians time to plan their future in their new state of Palestine. And Israel has agreed. The president promised that no Israelis and no Palestinians will be uprooted from their homes. His plan ensures that religious sites will remain accessible to all faiths, and it maintains the status quo on the Temple Mount. It also ensures that Jerusalem, a city that is holy to Jews, Christians, and Muslims, will remain undivided. The plan calls for the ancient capital of Jerusalem to remain united under Israel's sovereignty. And it gives the Palestinians a pathway to a state of their own if they choose to take it. In the area of security, the plan is clear. The Palestinian state will be demilitarized, Hamas will be disarmed, and Israel will retain security control on the entire area west of the Jordan River. This is not likely to be okay with the Palestinians, who have been practicing violent terrorism for generations and are not going to want to give up their guns or their territory. Another aspect of this plan is that Palestinians will finally have to recognize Israel as the Jewish state and learn to partner with it instead of plotting to destroy it. It makes clear that the Palestinian refugee problem must be solved outside the state of Israel. The inflow of 5 million Palestinians into Israel, whose population is just 9 million, is unthinkable. It would destroy the state. No state is going to be willing to commit suicide like that. Now, the plan also includes a sweeping economic plan that ensures a $50 billion of investment in the new Palestinian state in infrastructure, in business development, in education, and much more. Trump said, I hope the Palestinians and its neighbors will embrace this and forge a peace with Israel. In a show of unusual commitment, Oman, Bahrain, and the United Arab Emirates sent ambassadors to this event to show their support for the new peace plan. Their presence was important because it demonstrated the new willingness of some of the Arab states to support an Israeli-Palestinian rapprochement that is decades overdue. In a fair look at history, it has been a long and rocky road to get to here. The Palestinians have consistently rejected compromise, although they signed on to the Oslo Accord, and the PLO chairman Yasser Arafat signed an agreement with Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. The two men even shared a Nobel Peace Prize because of their apparent willingness to reach out to peace. But these efforts ultimately failed when the Palestinians consistently chose terrorism over peace. So why should this time be different? One of the key parts, in my opinion, is the four-year window, which gives the Palestinian leaders an opportunity to cool off and decompress, think this through, and allow their Arab partners to convince them that this is really a good idea. The fact that Israel will refrain from building new towns in the West Bank will also help to relieve the animosity and maybe even the anger that drives the Palestinians to terrorism. 
This four-year window is a brilliant piece of this offer that allows the Palestinians the opportunity to rethink their options. So why is there a problem? What are the problems that could possibly keep this from happening? Well, there are many people who would say that this offer is one-sided, that Israel is favored over the Palestinians. With an undivided Jerusalem under Israeli sovereignty, even though the Palestinian government would convene in East Jerusalem. And then there is the fact that the leader of the West Bank Palestinians, Mahmoud Abbas, turned down this plan months before he even knew what was in it. And on Tuesday, when the plan was revealed, he turned it down again. There's one more reason why this might not work. No matter how good a plan it is and how much it offers to the Palestinian people that would make their lives better, this reason has nothing to do with the leaders wanting to better the lives of their people. It has everything to do with ideology. Within the charter of Hamas and within the guiding principles of the Palestinian Authority is an overriding mission to destroy the Jewish state of Israel, destroy everything in their way, and create a Palestinian state, an Islamic state of Palestine, with Jerusalem as its capital and its Jews gone. This ideology denies the Jewish claim to the land, denies Jewish links to its history, denies the archaeological finds that prove it, and the biblical references that can be found on the land even today. Mahmoud Abbas denies Jewish history on the land, has proclaimed that Jesus was a Palestinian and that the roots of Palestinians go back thousands of years, which is historically incorrect. Abbas has rewritten history to fit his own narrative. He denies the Holocaust and he denies the existence of the first temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians and the second temple that was destroyed by the Romans. In Gaza, Hamas has also rewritten history and has made its own plans for what is now Israel quite clear. In its revised charter, rewritten in 2017, it says, quote, Hamas refuses to hinder the resistance, meaning terrorism, or its weapons, and confirms the right of our people to develop resistant tools and equipment. Palestine, with its historical known borders from Jordan's River in the east to the Mediterranean Sea in the west, from Ras al-Nakora, which is the Israeli town of Rosh Hanikra, in the north, to Om al-Rashrash, which is Eilat, in the south, this land is Palestinian and a united regional unit. Displacing Palestinians and creating a Zionist entity does not cancel the right of Palestinians to enter their entire land and does not validate the Zionist entity to violate this land. There is no alternative to the creation of the Palestinian state with its sovereignty on the entire Palestinian land with Jerusalem as its capital. Unquote. In other words, Hamas defines the entire Palestinian state as all the land which it now comprises the Jewish state of Israel. And in its charter, It claims all that land for the Islamic land of Palestine. As long as the Palestinian leaders allow their people 
to live in squalor while they promote terrorism against Israel. As long as their belief system demands the destruction of the Jewish state and the Jews who live there, there is little hope for peace. I think President Trump's big mistake is making the assumption that the Palestinian leaders are really interested in the welfare of their people. By and large, Palestinian leaders have traditionally enriched themselves at the expense of their people. Yasser Arafat, for example, was able to squirrel away $3 billion of humanitarian aid to the Palestinian people. He stole that, and he put it away in Swiss bank accounts. It was found after he died, and much of it went to his widow. Very little of it went to his people. How did he do it? He did it by taxing his people, by inhibiting the growth of the economy, by not allowing it to grow, by failing to build an economic infrastructure that would support a proper national economy. Instead, he took the money for himself and left the people to their own devices. Mahmoud Abbas has done very much the same. While his people live in squalor, he lives in the lap of luxury. You know, I would love for this peace plan to work. Having lived in Israel, having lived in the region for 16 years, I know that there is nothing that Israelis want more than peace. Peace with their neighbors, peace at home, freedom to know that when they go out in the morning, that they'll come home at night and see their families. But until there is peace with the Palestinians, there cannot be peace like this because terrorism will always be in the back of everyone's mind. I think President Trump has done an extraordinary job putting this plan together. And it may be that pressure from other Arab states may actually cause some movement in the right direction in the direction of peace. But I don't know how you get around that, that ideology of hate. Ultimately, I believe peace will come. Ultimately, but I don't know when and I don't know how. How do you overcome the mindset that makes hate, killing, terrorism more important than the welfare of the people you're supposed to be governing? How do you overcome that ferocity of hatred that is so strong that nothing is as important as destroying your enemy, even if it means destroying your own people? How do you get over that? So I pray for peace in the region I pray for the peace of Jerusalem, as I suppose many of you do. I pray for the peace of Israel. I hope and I pray that peace will come. I can't think of any people who deserve it more than the people of Israel. Well, it's time for another quick break, and then I'll be right back with some words about the impeachment farce 
that has turned into some pretty good watching. Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled, seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shine and sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. To unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. We are the vision of the voices. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's hard to believe, but California is back on the radar again, and so are its homeless. This is an endless story, and it just gets sadder and sadder. This time, it's about another homeless place in a Home Depot parking lot. City Councilman Noel Gallo said, quote, We've been trying to work with Home Depot for a number of months. Make sure their property is safe, unquote. But Home Depot says it's paying off-duty officers as much as $100 an hour to patrol the area, and they added that the encampment impacts employee safety and school and store security. The encampment appeared in the Home Depot parking lot about three years ago. They just set up their makeshift homes, vehicles, and tents in the parking lot, and they stayed. The city promised to move the encampment six months ago, but it only just set a date for the move in March. You would think that the city would care about the companies that pay the high city taxes, 
or about the filth and the dangers of such an encampment in a retail space that caters to the public. Wouldn't you think they would care? Apparently they don't care that much or they would have kept their promise to clean it up. Maybe the city council members aren't that much into do-it-yourself. And speaking about a homeless encampment that just shows up, how about the encampment that showed up in a California subdivision and then went away? Well, the encampment is gone, but the homeowners each have to pay $300 for a total of $20,000 for a cleanup. Of course, the homeowners are saying it's not their responsibility, while the management company is placing the responsibility squarely on their shoulders. The encampment was reported back in October 2017, but it seems there was some confusion about who was responsible. Needless to say, the cleanup involves dealing with the ills of a homeless encampment, including the needles, the human waste, the garbage, the rats. As I've mentioned before, many California cities have thrown hundreds of millions of dollars at the homeless problem. But it's only gotten worse. You just can't make this stuff up. Did you watch any of the impeachment trial? First came the Democrats. They were awful. They kept saying the same things over and over again, and then they whined because, having called all their witnesses in the House impeachment hearings, two committees worth of witnesses, mind you, now they want to call more witnesses. What was wrong with the witnesses they called? Why didn't they call then the ones they want now? Oh, it seems they just found out that those witnesses didn't really prove their case. So now they want to call more witnesses to help save their impeachment process. And there are four Republicans who just might let that happen. It's amazing. But you know, the most amazing thing was when Adam Schiff gave his closing arguments, people said he was statesmanlike, powerful, emotional, a great orator. Really? What rubbish. Nobody asked me, but I thought he was pathetic. And after three days of nonstop talk from the Democrats, repeating the same lies and the same non-impeachable charges, Schiff gave the closing statement, and he did get something right. He said, if the truth doesn't matter, we're lost. Framers couldn't protect us from ourselves if right and truth don't matter. No constitution can protect us if right doesn't matter anymore, because right matters, because right matters and the truth matters. Otherwise, we are lost, unquote. Well, like I said, he repeats himself. But here's the thing. He was saying that truth matters. Hold on to that thought, okay? Don't, don't let it go, because I'm coming back to it. He also said something equally illuminating. He said, we are here today to consider a much more grave matter, and that is an attempt to use the powers of the presidency to cheat in an election. For precisely this reason, the president's misconduct cannot be decided at the ballot box, for we cannot be assured that the vote will be fairly won. Unquote. Are you kidding me? He just came up with a brand new reason for impeaching the president. He's now saying the president needs to be impeached for something he hasn't done yet, which is to cheat on the elections. In other words, Schiff warned us 
that we can't let an election judge Trump because Trump is trying to cheat to win the election. He doesn't give any proof. He hasn't given any proof about anything. But Schiff finally let his guard down and revealed what this whole charade has been about from the beginning. The Democrats are afraid that if Trump is allowed to run in the 2020 election, he is likely to win. So their only move is to make sure that he doesn't get to run. It's insane, really. This is not America. This is not the way America is supposed to be. This is the guy who says in the same speech that truth matters. He said it over and over again. But this is the same guy who lied about the Trump-Zelensky phone call. He is the guy who lied about the whistleblower, about whether he met with him or he didn't meet with him, about whether he knew his name or he didn't know his name. This is the guy who said he had, quote, incontrovertible evidence, unquote, about Trump's Russia collusion when he had nothing of the sort. Adam Schiff is a pathological liar. He lies at the drop of a hat. He lies for fun. He lies to make a point. He lies to satisfy his lust for personal power. He is the last man who should be leading the charge against the president. But then, after the Democrats were all winded and off the stage, then we came to the Republican defense. Did you hear that? And it was carried on by some of the best legal minds in the country. Alan Dershowitz, scholar of constitutional and criminal law from Boston, discussed the constitutional issues involved in the case. He said that in order for a president to be impeached, an actual crime must have been committed. Impeachable offenses are treason, bribery, or similar actions. But abuse of power and obstruction of Congress, he said, are not similar crimes, and they're not impeachable. Quote, this is the key point in this impeachment case, he said. Please understand what I'm arguing, is that purely non-criminal conduct, including abuse of power and obstruction of Congress, are outside the range of impeachable offenses. Unquote. Jay Sekulow went right after Schiff, directly, referring to the kangaroo court that he ran in his committee impeachment hearing. He said, quote, Mr. Schiff talked about a trifecta. I'll give you a trifecta. During the proceedings that took place before the Judiciary Committee, the President was denied the right to cross-examine witnesses, the President was denied the right to access evidence, and the President was denied the right to have counsel present at hearings. That's a trifecta. A trifecta that violates the Constitution of the United States. Unquote. Robert Ray said that the charges against Trump cheapen the impeachment process because they rely on what he called insufficient evidence and that Trump's actions did not rise to the level that they warrant removal from office. Quote, the charge must be treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. It must be one for which clear and unmistakable proof can be produced. Only if the evidence actually produced against the president is indeed irrefutable such that his own constituents, in this case the 63 million people like me who voted for President Trump, accept his guilt of the offense charged in order to overwhelmingly persuade a supermajority of Americans 
and thus their senators, of malfeasance, warranting his removal from office. That's what Ray said. Pam Bondi from Florida used Vice President Joe Biden and his son Hunter to underscore the fact that Trump's concern about Ukraine corruption was justified. She played a 2016 video clip that all of us have seen by now, maybe many times, of Vice President Joe Biden in, in which he bragged about how he used the USAID to get the Ukrainians to remove a prosecutor who was investigating Burisma. What is very interesting is that the Democrats are investigating Donald Trump for the very thing that Joe Biden has admitted, even bragged about doing. Would this be an appropriate place to say, you just can't make this stuff up? So the first part of the trial is over. The managers have had their say, and so have the lawyers for the defense. And so it goes. There's more, and we'll get to it again next week. I don't know about you, but I've had enough of this farce, at least for now. Here's a quick story about a panel discussion on CNN this week. Don Lemon has gotten himself into a whole heap of trouble in the past, and I can't figure out for the life of me why he's still on the air. But in this case, it wasn't Lemon who caught the flack. He was the host, but it was his guest, ex-Republican strategist Rick Wilson, who got himself into trouble. Here's what he said. And I won't do this. He put on a southern accent in order to make his point, and I won't try to imitate it. But here's what he said. He was referring to Pompeo, he said, who, quote, also knows deep within his heart that Donald Trump couldn't find Ukraine on a map if you had the letter U and a picture of an actual physical crane next to it, Wilson said. He knows that this is, you know, an administration defined by ignorance of the world. And so that's partly him playing to the base and playing to their audience. You know, the credulous boomer rube demo that backs Donald Trump. Unquote. Was he talking about me? About you? He went on, but that's enough airtime for him. It reminds me of when Hillary called us all deplorables. When did it become funny to make fun of people's accents or their politics? Rick Wilson should know better. And everybody's going to know better. You know, Tuesday night was another Keep America Great rally, and this one was in New Jersey. New Jersey! True blue New Jersey. And people were lined up, you ready for this? Since Sunday to get in. Can you believe it? They said that 175,000 tickets were requested. And thousands of people came. The hall had room for 7,400, and there were thousands more outside. Hey, it's cold in New Jersey in January. You gotta love the guy to do that. And speaking of politics, this week, the four candidates who are senators were stuck in Washington at the impeachment trial, just one week before the Iowa caucus. But Bernie Sanders had AOC to stump for him at a rally in Iowa City. He might have done better. She got up and she danced around the stage and did her AOC thing, hopping up and down for 26 minutes, and never once mentioned his name. Yikes! Well, the Iowa caucuses will open the campaign season next Monday, and I'll be talking about the results next week. A lot depends on the opening bell, because they set the tone 
for the rest of the campaign, the Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primaries. And this year, the field is full, and no one really knows who will come out on top. The smart money says that no one will, that the candidates at the top are just too close together. So we'll see. A lot depends on the weather as well. The forecast for Monday in Iowa calls for rain and a temperature of somewhere around freezing. Not so hot. It could be better. So stay tuned. I'll be all over this next week. Okay, it looks like we've got time for one more story. And there's something I'd like to talk about with you. I've been watching the president, and I can't get over wherever he is, whatever he's doing. He's so relaxed. He looks like he's had a week in the sun. You know, he's, I understand, I've been told, that he sleeps for four hours a night and that he reads a bunch of newspapers every day and circles the articles that he wants to talk about. And then he goes about and he goes to his meetings and he goes to his rallies and he plays golf. And it's just remarkable. But the most remarkable thing that is, is just blows me away is that he's doing all this looking, doing, taking, today he, he talked about a, a massive peace plan for the Middle East. That was huge. And, you know, he's also dealing with the, um, this virus and all the other issues relating to what's going on with China now. I mean, my gosh, with the virus over there and our brand new trade deal, he's got a lot on his plate. So the, question that I have is how does he do all this in parallel with the impeachment hearings or the impeachment trial rather in the Senate? We're looking, it's like, you know, we have a double screen and on the left is the the nonsense that's going on in the Senate. And on the right, you see the president with the head of state of Israel or, or with a, a, a group from China This is astonishing. It's absolutely amazing. I don't know how he does it, but I'm glad he does it because what he's doing for America is just absolutely phenomenal. And he, of course, he's not getting nearly the credit or the recognition that he should because the crazy lamestream media doesn't give him coverage, doesn't give him the benefit of the doubt, doesn't give him any kind of recognition even for everything that he's done for America. And this is something which I think is appalling. And it's also something very sinister, I think, because it is doing great damage to our national ethic, our culture. There is so much animus in the air. And this is something that I worry about a lot. And I talk about a lot. We've sort of come halfway around the circle, haven't we? We started with Trump and how amazing he is doing everything that he's doing in parallel with this impeachment trial. But I just wanted to mention that I I think he is probably the most remarkable president we have had in our history. And I want to remind you of one other thing. I mentioned it once before, and I I think it's worth mentioning again. Some of the greatest presidents in our history were very unpopular 
in their day. Abraham Lincoln was so unpopular after his first election that he had to come into Washington in the dead of night in disguise because he was afraid of being attacked. So I'm not so worried about Donald Trump. He seems to have everything well in hand, and he's doing one hell of a job. Well, that's all the time we have today. I am so glad you decided to come spend this hour with me, and I hope you enjoyed it. I look forward to being with you again next week. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been The Friedman Report.